Welcome to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, you are in for a treat today. I have the pleasure and the honor of hosting Dr. Rohin Francis, who is a cardiologist in the United Kingdom. He was trained in London and Cambridge, and he's also uh, getting a PhD as well at the University College in London. Rohan has an unbelievable media presence. He has his own website, medlifecrisis.co.uk. He also has his own YouTube channel. He posts a lot of videos on uh, medical education, cardiology, and he really incorporates humor into his videos. His Twitter handle is at MedCrisis, and it's really, uh, you really just need to follow him and just learn of how much, you know, how much he really spends time to really debunk the fake science, to educate the masses about what's happening in science, in cardiology. But but he really does that with a sense of humor. It's a really, um, a very rare talent that frankly I have not seen in many, uh, in anyone. So I follow his uh, productions religiously. I enjoy listening to him. And uh, it's a treat for me as a host to bring on Dr. Rohan Francis, who I've admired from afar. And we were able to bring him on before the end of 2020. And specifically, we are taping this episode on December 29th, 2020. You'll be listening to it sometime in mid-January. But uh, really, we want to talk about humor in medicine and what happened this past year, a little bit of COVID science, uh, just a whole ranging topics that I'm sure you will all enjoy. And just to get an idea how Dr. Francis combines music with humor, with personality, and tries to really convey a very logical and influential message. I I just want to give you a taste of what you could find on his website and some of his production. So let me just leave you with a couple of minutes. It's about two minutes and 30 seconds of a video that he taped a couple of weeks ago around Christmas time when he was covering the COVID unit, I believe, during one of the surges of the new uh, virulent. Take a listen and just get a sense of what what this talented cardiologist has to offer. Twas the night shift before COVID mists and all through the land, the virus spread from mucous membrane to hand. Families disjointed, streets and theaters all empty, ITUs overflowing, acute admissions aplenty. A year to remember, a year to forget. 2020 isn't quite over yet. An entirely new vocabulary now known, novel words we've learnt as we all sat at home. On furlough, on lockdown, now please social distance, second wave bubble up, our naught heard resistance. It's easy to focus on Santa's long naughty list, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, anti-science, you get the gist. Let's instead remember all those who did their utmost. To you at home, we in the hospital, raise a toast. 
You distanced, you masked, you worked from your room. I want to hug you, not in person, that's disgusting, over Zoom. This year has tested us in new and sadistic ways. Not least the video call games we've all had to play, online parties, quizzes, enduring karaoke Miley Cyrus, a fate considerably worse than the actual coronavirus. I'm proud of my healthcare colleagues across the globe who fought bravely against this unpleasant microbe. Nurses, porters, cleaners and carers, physios, therapists, ventilator repairers, Essential workers, serving us without protection, deprived neighborhoods ravaged by infection, and yet, incredibly, we find a gift beneath the tree, a vaccine developed with breathtaking urgency, by scientists, by medics, by wonderful volunteers. But still there are those who wish to stoke fears. Let's help each other and out of pandemic find a way, a beacon of hope in the form of mRNA. And so as the magical night draws near, try not to think about the Rona coaster that's been this year. A sound on the rooftop, eight reindeer and sledder, a vision in red, the world's greatest super spreader. He's not the only one who'll be working this week. Spare a thought for those struggling to make ends meet. But those of you at home, stay safe and your energy conserve. Eat well, be merry and fatten your curve. 2021 will be better and it's almost in sight. Happy vaccines for all and to all a good night. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Francis, uh, I'd like to plug the show, of course. I mean, we have to. So you can find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere that you consume your podcasts. If you don't mind, subscribe to the show, write a brief review, uh, give uh, the show the number of stars you believe the show deserves. And refer a friend or a colleague. Look, if you don't refer a friend or a colleague, it's very simple. You've got no friends. You've got no colleagues. And you don't want to really be labeled as somebody without any friends. So if you do, make sure you mention this show to a couple of friends or a colleague or colleagues and, and let them check it out. And uh, really, very excited. Without further ado, Dr. Rowan Francis on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I'm personally in for a treat on today's show because I have one of my absolute uh, favorite celebrities in medicine, but really... Brings, <laughs> we definitely don't call me that. Yeah, I would say like, you know, you, you cross the, you know, the celebrity line to medical, all of that stuff. You're going to introduce yourself, but I'm very delighted to really have Dr. Rohan Francis with me on today's show. Uh, we are taping this show for context on December 29. 2020. Uh, we are a couple of days away from uh, finishing this uh, amazing year that we all had. And we probably will air this show sometime in the middle of January, just in case uh, for context. And um, uh, Rohan lives in the UK, so we are a little bit, uh, there's a, some time difference. But uh, welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. Appreciate you taking the time of uh, a very busy schedule. Maybe just briefly a little bit on for the folks who are listening to the show and who don't know you a little bit about you and um, who you are, what you do, and um, let us get to know you a little bit more. Well, thanks, Shadi, very much for inviting me on. Uh, I'm, I'm Rohan. I'm a cardiologist in the UK. I live in London. I work just outside London in the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre, which is a very big, busy centre, sort of about 30 miles outside London or so. And, you know, just uh, I'm a fairly normal uh, NHS doctor uh, in my day job. But 
I've got to meet people like you and 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 other uh, make new friends on on online via kind of medical education that I I tend to do online. So it all started a few years ago on Twitter, um, which I was actually very slow to engage with, and only came to when there was a bit of controversy happening to training doctors in the UK, where the government, I mean, it's its a whole story in itself, but the government was essentially playing silly buggers with a lot of doctors' trainings and, and uh, contracts. And I went to online to kind of see what the news was and find out what's going on. And I didn't find anything on the conventional news sources for, for medics. And I asked my friends, you know, how do I catch up with this news? And they said, it's all on Facebook and Twitter. And, and that's really when I I joined. So that was about 2015, 16, really just to keep up with med medical politics. But I quickly grew quite bored of medical politics and then discovered that actually social media has this tremendous potential for medical education. And my specialty is one which lends itself quite well to sort of the online medium. There's lots of pretty pictures and things. And I guess I developed a little bit of an audience doing pretty straightforward medical education aimed predominantly at medics. But in the last two, three years, I finally got around to doing something I've been wanting to do for a long time, which is use online video for edu education. And I started a YouTube channel, which is more aimed at a, a general audience of people who are interested in science, not necessarily people practicing medicine. And that's really sort of taken off. And uh, it's become kind of like a, a second career now, but it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, allowed me to talk to lots of interesting people. And, and I like to deal with medical and science topics in a way that I hope isn't done, at least not on YouTube, uh, by others. I, I don't think there's any need for yet another channel explaining what a heart attack is or what diabetes is. So I try and take a, a bit more of a sidelong view of, of medical topics. And, and clearly this year there's been a lot of that to talk about yeah and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that so so your audience when you do the youtube uh, videos are, are like general public you simplify it enough that you don't have to be a physician or it's more you said medics so can you clarify that like who you make the videos for so the youtube channels is just f for anybody you don't you don't need to have any pre-existing medical training whereas sort of twitter tended to be more kind of shop talk but again you know now i've uh, you know that's grown as well so I, I i kind of mix things up a bit from my youtube audience i'd say that there is a fair proportion who are in, within the medical profession whether allied healthcare professional nurse doctor um and quite a lot of medical students i, I get quite a, a lot of messages from from medical students which is really nice you know that's that's fantastic that they're finding the stuff that I cover interesting or useful because it's not stuff that would typically be found in a medical school curriculum but I think you know there are a lot of important skills that one can learn outside conventional medical education things that aren't typically taught so well in medical schools like maybe slightly more philosophical takes on medicine or ethics and things like that but yes it's it's a uh, open to anybody you don't need any knowledge most people who watch tend to be of a scientific persuasion either quite interested in science or within the um oh crikey 
No, I can hear you. Yeah, sorry, my, my kid's just playing on my Bluetooth that's, keyboard. That's perfect. You see, that's that's an authentic way of taping. <laughs> the nice thing about this is listeners realize it's healthcare unfiltered. We don't even filter anything. I like that. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, you can you can have... Uh, uh, my kids need plenty of filtration, I can tell you. So, um, But yes, so, so YouTube's just a general audience. So, so Rohan, a um, couple of things, and we'll move on to more serious topics, but... Um, your Twitter handle is at MedCrisis. And it is, you know, it's actually when you go, when you try to go to your website, you have to do that as well. What was, what's the, is there a significance to MedCrisis? Do you think that medicine is living in a crisis? And that's what's really led to your deciding on the, mine is very boring. It's at Shadi Nabhan, really. Yeah. So yeah, MedLife Crisis was, was the original name. And I, I like the way you've given it a kind of uh, deeper meaning there, but it really was just a play on words uh, of midlife crisis because you won't believe this because it's so far away from what I actually do. But my initial plan was to, you know, I'm quite into fitness and things like that, was to do uh, sort of dispelling pseudoscience within fitness culture. So a lot of bro science and kind of talking about all these myths that uh, people who go to the gym believe. And because I was uh, getting older, I and my friends, you know, joked that I'm having a midlife crisis going to the gym too often and things like that. So I, it was it was just a play on that. It was going to be midlife crisis so a, a medical take on a midlife crisis. And then I, I've gone nowhere near any of those topics, really. So but the name stuck and it, yeah, it's I'm quite happy with it. Not only that you are a social media star and you do education and you are a full-time cardiologist, you have decided in your spare time to get a PhD or something. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, still ongoing at the moment. Yeah, so, so I've been uh, doing some research for the last few years um, using cardiac MRI, um, so looking at um, patients having acute myocardial infarctions. So yeah, it's taking longer than perhaps I'd anticipated, but uh, maybe that's understandable. But um, fingers crossed, I can I can finish it off. And I checked your website. I mean, I I, I love it. I mean, I think um, I guess I'm curious because I am you know finishing also a website of mine as well. But I'm curious, how do you do you do you look at the metrics? Do you I mean, you know, some people do it as a hobby. You just, you know, you just do it and, and all of this. But, you know, how much do you spend time looking at metrics, looking at how many people viewed my videos, um, measures of success for you that allow you to, um, to decide if you're on the right track? Are you getting the engagement that you want? And what do you aspire more from that engagement on a personal level? I mean, I, I think you're, you're asking a question that's frequently talked about within YouTube kind of circles and you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be part of a, a little community of people who create videos on, on YouTube and other platforms. And the vast majority of them um, are, are full time, you know, they're full time YouTubers. And so I'm a bit of an anomaly that I've got a day job. There are a few other people like me, but it, that brings with it a, a great liberty. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I realize I'm very fortunate to have that, that I don't rely on it for my livelihood. And so some of my the, these friends of mine who you know, YouTube is their, is their salary, they really do have to pour over those kind of metrics and, and the, and YouTube is, is amazing. It gives you very, very detailed analytics for, for videos. 
but I do see a lot of them fall into the trap of really obsessing over these numbers and getting quite fixated and depressed when a video doesn't perform. And it's a very fickle medium. You know, uh, a lot of my videos will get restricted, which means they're still put left online. It's not that they're taken down. That That's pretty uncommon unless you're violating some sort of copyright. But when I deal with controversial topics, so and controversial means unsuitable for an advertiser in the most part. So YouTube obviously makes their money through adver ad advertising. And if a YouTube algorithm, it's rarely done by humans, although it, you can request a human review, when a video is flagged as unsuitable for most advertisers, it will be restricted, meaning that it'll be online, but it may be hidden from some searches. It may not show up in a notifications box for subscribers. Because if YouTube can't run adverts on it, they're not going to promote it as much because it makes no sense for them. So some examples of when that's happened to me was early in the, in the pandemic. I was making some videos about COVID-19 and I don't think anybody knew how to, how to deal with the topic back then. So YouTube took the initial approach of just demonetizing, so restricting a lot of videos on COVID-19. And I think that was understandable early on, but other videos, uh, since then, where they've they've tried to improve their approach, you know, I've made videos trying to poke, not poke holes, but trying to sort of challenge some of the dogmatic science that's around COVID-19. And I flagged up one of their misinformation algorithms because it thought my video was one of these conspiracy theorist videos. And so that got completely throttled for the first two weeks. Other videos, maybe... Um, if you talk about war, so I've, I've made a video about doctors who are complicit with torture and specifically talking about the Holocaust. And that is, is a shame because, you know, I think that's a really important topic and, and a video that I, I sort of put a lot of effort into, which, you know, has, has really underperformed. So the, it's very fickle. So people who rely on YouTube for their income, I think, really live and die by, by these metrics. But for me, I've been very lucky in that obviously I, you know, I do keep an eye and, and look how a video is performing and it's always nice to see things doing well, but I've got a tremendous um, sort of fallback that it's, it's not something I rely on for my income. Do you, do you have a cadence? Like, do you say once a week, I'm going to get a video or is it really, if you have a busy week, you may get four videos out. If you have a slow week, there's nothing going on. I mean, so you depend on the, uh, what's happening outside you, right? Totally. Yeah. I, 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 I think having a schedule is, is just stress generating. Yeah. So it's, it's totally based on, you know, if I, if I have a few, you know, a day, a day free, I'll try and bang one out quickly. Now you, you say on your website, Rowan, that you are, a dad, a doctor, but a dork. Also. <laughs> you have the three Ds. Yeah, I well, stand that by me. <laughs> Probably dork before dad and doctor. But uh, that takes me to, I mean, there's clearly a comedic flavor and a funny flavor in the way you communicate with people. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. I think if anybody is listening that have not looked up your website or followed you or watched your videos, they should really do that. So yes, you do the education, you debunk the science. I've actually, we're going to talk about some of this as well in a little bit, um, but you do it in, in a funny way. Like there's a, a little bit of humor to it. So I guess my first question is, uh, you know, 
and this is a talent. I mean, not everybody ha- can be funny or has the ability to do comedy relief. How, when did you discover that you have this talent? Like you clearly have that in you. When did you know that you really do? And because the worst thing that can happen, if you think you're funny, you get in front of the audience and nobody laughs, which happens to me daily at my household. So, so when did you know that you have that talent? Oh, I don't know if I, but I, 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 I've, I've always quite enjoyed trying at least to make people laugh. And I used to do quite a few shows at uni and, and, and a bit of stand-up comedy, but I was aware then that it's, it's a really soft audience. You know, the, these would be people that often knew me or other students and, and, and student nights are pretty easy. So I did a bit of that, but then kind of just, enjoyed being a junior doctor for, for several years and just really kind of got into into the work and let a lot of these outside hobbies kind of take a back seat, which which is fine. You know, I, I think that was an important time to, to concentrate on the job. But in recent years, I uh, was kind of asked by chance by a friend to come and uh, do a stand-up gig, which I hadn't done for many years. And again, it was a, quite a geeky audience of, of science-y type people. So I uh, just, you know, t- told a bunch of the jokes that I tell on the ward. So it wasn't really a, a challenge to write because I have these kind of stock gags, but it was just a new audience. And it went very well and it was great fun. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there is a way I can combine comedy with science education, uh, which I, I guess sounds obvious now, but I hadn't really put two and two together until then. And so that was a real wake up moment that I thought, actually, this is something I, I can offer because I, I think I'm, I'm aware that, um, you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses, but the machine, especially in cardiology, does tend to funnel people down into doing the same things, acquiring the same skills and, and processing us all out at the other end as, as carbon copies of each other. And you know, cardiology, like uh, your field as well, is is very academic. And a lot of people to do something extra alongside work tend to go into academia. And I've, I've tried that route. And I think I've, I've struggled. I don't think it's really for me. I think um, I'm, I'm full of admiration that my, my colleagues that do that. But I think for me, I felt that my strengths perhaps lie elsewhere. And uh, it seemed like this maybe is a, a little niche that I could I could try and follow. And you do say that um, again on your website, good medicine, uh, bad jokes. Uh, it's much better than the other way around, right? Better than <laughs> good jokes and bad medicine. So, Rowan, I, I want to talk a little bit. I mean, we're taping this. We're finishing 2020, and we'll air this beginning of January. We want to talk about this year that passed because I've taped an episode on a year in review. I've had several guests, and I. I want to try to take a look at 2020, COVID, the science from your eyes as a, you, you're a physician. I'm going to also say that you're a comedian, but also you lived outside of the U.S. You live outside of the U.S. and you've seen what's going on in the U.S., outside the U.S. And so I want to try to combine all of this together. Uh, let's start a little bit with COVID science. Um, yesterday, uh, so December 28th, I lo- went to PubMed.com and I put COVID-19 and I it returned over 87,000 peer-reviewed papers. 
I mean, there's no... You've got to remember as well, that's peer-reviewed published papers. So if you include all the preprints that have often made even more headlines than, than published papers, then the, the number I had estimated a while ago now was, was well over 120,000. I mean, that, that's, that's really staggering, right? I mean, so I guess as a, as a clinician, as a researcher, as a cardiologist, when you see this number, I mean, this can't be good science. I mean... No, exactly. So, so, so then, then, I mean, and clearly, you know, a lot of times the science could be either politicized or used differently, and you can't, the general public can't even tell anymore uh, good data from good data how how do you how do you take all of this information and try to take the garbage out like how how much time do you have to invest effort into into getting the inform you know telling the information i mean you you know we'll talk about your field i mean goodness i mean you know every single heart problem is going to be labeled as covid related i mean how, how do you how do you filter this yeah, I think that's a, a very good question and a very difficult one to answer. And, and I'm not sure there's any one point where the, the majority of the blame lies. And your opening episode of, of this podcast was with um, uh, Venk, uh, Murthy and Anish Koko, wasn't it? Talking about um, some of the bad science that's surrounded COVID-19 and, and cardiology. And, and there's this this interesting phenomenon that um, that I heard about. I think uh, maybe through Saurabh Cha, who was your recent. I've, I was going to say actually as a side note, this is I think the third time I've followed Saurabh and Vinay onto a podcast. So this is this is like uh, some sort of medical intellectual dark web, uh, and I'm not just referring to the fact that we're all Indian, but. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, uh, the phenomenon I was uh, going to mention is something called the oh, Gelman amnesia, which is uh, Michael Crichton had, had talked about with, with his about his friend, Murray Gelman, who, who named the Quark Nobel Prize winner. And it's a phenomenon where you're sort of reading a newspaper and you think all the articles are very accurate and well researched. And then you come to an article in your field of expertise and you realize it's just full of nonsense and completely inaccurate. But then you turn the page and you, you have the Gelman amnesia, you then forget you've just read an article full of hogswash. And then again, you think the articles are completely accurate. And I thought about that a lot this year because uh, when that cardiology stuff hit the front pages, I was like, hang on a second, you know, this, this is something I do understand here. I, I can go beyond just reading the paper itself and actually look at the the images and and these are things that i look at in my phd and and this is very much in my wheelhouse and my understanding of what they found was completely different to what was being reported so i'm like well, wait a second you know if if this is the level of accuracy or the spin that we're seeing put on research then why do i think it's not happening in other fields of, of medical research of COVID-19 science, where I don't have that expertise in epidemiology and virology and things like that. So it's, it's incredibly difficult for anybody, leave aside someone in the medical profession, to, to make head on tail of, of everything that's been published. And the other thing that's clearly become apparent is we all have our biases. And the same research was sometimes interpreted in totally different ways by people on either sides of, of, a, of a discussion. I'm, I'm avoiding using the, the word 
political here because I'm not necessarily alluding to political differences, but say you've got a, a difference of opinion within a scientific debate, people can look at the same data and come away with different opinions. And often in science, you know, that's, that's fine. That's, that's part of the scientific process. But the whole thing this year has played out with such unparalleled public scrutiny. And as we were mentioning earlier, a lot of these papers aren't even peer reviewed. They're on preprint servers, which I don't really have a problem with preprint servers existing, but it, it has compounded the problem. There's a side note that you could say that actually the peer review process has not necessarily eliminated many of these problems anyway. And we, we could have a whole separate discussion about all the problems with the medical publication industry. But safe to say that, um, suffice to say that peer review has its problems. And so I, I found it very, very difficult understanding a lot of these papers. And I've, and I've tried to, you know, try to look at different sides of, of the argument um, as much as I can. But bottom line, in answer to your question, I, I don't know how, how we can do this. The media seem, you know, people criticize social media a lot as being responsible for the, 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 the world becoming polarized. But the mainstream media, which should be helping, it should be trying to seek the, the truth, has completely, you know, had a, a abandoned its um, ideals and now is driven by exactly the same things that drive sensationalist tweeters to, to retweet very extreme views is, you know, the mainstream media is, is also competing for attention and clicks and has been fueling all the fires as well. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's a whole new situation this year. We, we really have been caught with our guard down and I fear that it's, it's too late now. The next big challenge I think is going to be the response to the vaccine. You know, but, I, I, but, but Ron, I mean, I think one of the issues, and you, you start to allude to this in terms of the clicks and all of these things, but like you can't sometimes question something because you will be equated as anti-COVID or anti-science. Like if, if I, like if you come in and tell somebody like, okay, the cardiac MRI paper that we, we can talk about if you want a little bit, but so pick any cardiology paper in COVID that you don't think it's correct. And you come out and say, I think this is just a bunch of whatever. Uh, people will say, oh, he's denying COVID. He, he thinks COVID is the flu. But like, people can't even differentiate between critical appraisal of scientific article and the fact that you know, you're not allowed to criticize this. It, it's really challenging. It, it is, yeah. I. I... I don't know. I, I I try not to worry too much about what people say, and and I try and be as as honest as I can. But I would be lying if I said that I don't self censor. I, I definitely feel that more this year that I have wanted to say something on Twitter or on, in a video, and I've just said, look, I, I just value my mental health. It's not and <laughs> Yeah, it's not worth it. And, you know, I, occasionally I felt it something's very important. I'll try and vocalize it, but you're, you're never going to please everyone. And uh, interestingly, the, the two media, I think, are different, my experiences. So on YouTube, I tend to be attacked for being a, a shill and big farmer. And, you know, I, I get a lot of the anti 
lockdown, I'm using air quotes here, but the anti-science, anti-lockdown kind of crowd who veer into real extremists who, you know, believe a lot of conspiracy theories. And I get attacked for being too woke and complaining about um, things that aren't real, like racism doesn't exist and all that. Whereas on Twitter, it's the complete opposite. And if I voice any kind of, as you said, any sort of skepticism about a, a, a paper that asserts that COVID-19 is going to kill billions of people, and I say, wait a second, this is this is not entirely kosher, then I'll, then I'll, I'll get that similar kind of criticism and say, how, how can you minimize the risk here? And I don't think you can win. And I mean, yeah, there, I, there, know, are, I, there, are, there are two things I've always felt they should be. Well, there are two things. Like I always felt we should be able to have an academic debate, even in any difficult subject. Like one of the things that I've, I've struggled with when I see sometimes on social media, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when, when, we, when there are claims, right? that let's say US only. From a US perspective, we have exceeded now 300,000 deaths toll from COVID-19. Let's say, I don't know, 330,000, something like that. Every single life matters. But there's a movement that all of these deaths could have been prevented, or maybe like 200,000 of them could have been prevented. But, but I don't know why, like, okay, I'm not saying, I think every single life matters, but I have no clue how many we could have prevented versus not prevented. And there's an assertion that we could have prevented half of them or three quarters. And I, I know, I mean, I don't even dare asking, how do you get that figure from? I, I don't know if it's just the human physio, uh, um, psychology that's, that's so unable to deal with uncertainty that we seem to, to grasp these definitive sounding statements. And, and again, you know, when I, when I say something like that, people infer what they want sometimes they'll they'll think i'm agreeing with them sometimes they'll think i'm i'm disagreeing with them and it's amazing that i can sometimes i i i skate on thin ice very effectively and and people who are clearly completely opposing viewpoints watch a video and go oh great well done really good points and other times they'll both think that i'm you know on the other person's side so I've, I've, I think I've learned to, to try to avo avoid worrying about it too much. But yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily repeat some ground that you've, you've talked about on, on previous episodes, but I think that inability to have open discussions is definitely something I've noticed a lot more this year. And again, on Twitter, it's, it's, it's a kind of free-for-all. And I'm not one of these people that said, says that it's a real cesspit and it's awful. I still find it a very useful and, you know, a, a very important place where I get my own education. But when you kind of take a bit more control, so you have something that you're in charge of, like a podcast, like a blog, like a, a YouTube video, then I think it's a bit less... Uh, conducive to this kind of chaos and you can have a bit more of a uh, of an interesting discussion so so that's why i you know I, I do feel quite lucky to have that platform yeah no absolutely and i think the you know i mean we all know um you know the danish mask study for example that, that came out and um, and i think you know, the idea that if you criticize that study, if you mm. just put on your academic hat and say, I would like to look at this trial, this study, and say if it's good or bad, then you're an anti-masker. Then you're suddenly became, you, you, you can't criticize 
study anymore based on its academic merit. And I think that's really the part where I struggle with. And and I've seen you, you know, one of your videos, especially with the, with the cardiac stuff where, you know, you went on and you just talked about, I think it was a 20 minute video from a couple of months ago where you totally gave it to the, the cardiac and the imaging and all of these things. I mean, you, you, you were pretty vocal about it. Uh, the, the market is an interesting one, uh, as, as along with Sweden as a country, because I've described them as a kind of Schrodinger phenomenon, where they can be held up as evidence by both sides of the mask debate, or the lockdown debate, as supporting their viewpoint. So, you know, I find it quite remarkable that that people can both look at Sweden or both look at the Danish mask study and say, oh, yeah, this is this is supporting my viewpoint. How, how is that possible? So, um, yeah, I mean, strange times. You talk about trade-offs. It's actually pretty interesting and on lockdown and so forth. I, I, I tweeted today because I kind of felt, I mean, I, I sometimes I think I feel I'm subtweeting the entire medium, actually. Uh, and I just put in, I'll read that to you. I said, so many people on Twitter would benefit from an intense crash course on the concept of trade-offs. And I think this should be mandatory. And, and you know what sparks this for me is the assertion that every intervention that we do is 100% accurate and everything else is zero. So if we do the lockdown, it's the panacea. And mm. nobody, you know, and if we do, and and I guess I've just embraced uncertainty. Like I'm, I don't think I, I know. Yeah, I think that puts you in a minority, though. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that is is the normal mindset that to, to be able to to operate why? with uncertainty. How, what got us here? Like why? Why are we not able to embrace uncertainty? We've done this all our lives in med- in medicine, right? You you see a patient. And you sometimes say, I'm going to do this for you. I hope for the best, but maybe I'm not sure it's going to work. But but have we? I mean, we, we like to think that we do. But actually, even within medicine, I don't think people really do operate with that uncertainty the way that, you know, strictly speaking, we should be. We still order too many tests. We still sort of, you know, everybody likes to... Th- think of themselves as a Bayesian and, and and talk about all this kind of highfalutin statistics, which goes over my head. But at the end of the day, when they're treating a patient, which I, I'm not criticizing, I think is understandable, we do kind of look for that certainty. And of course, patients look to us for that certainty. So we subconsciously maybe try and hedge our bets in a certain direction. And I would have hoped that the medical profession had been able to deal with uncertainty better this year. And maybe, it, you know, it's it's because the pandemic has been such a huge thing that's affected all of our lives outside of our, our professional life as, a, as well. But I've been really surprised at how very far, you know, more knowledgeable than, than me, uh, people who are involved with uh, all different levels of, of academia within within medicine, have said some some really kind of non-scientific statements and you know I, I don't really want to name names but I think we can all think of certain Twitter accounts or media outlets that have have really up you know previously if you'd asked me a year ago I would have said that person is is a paragon of of uh, uh, you know a, a really leading prominent academic physician 
and I trust everything they say implicitly. And then this year, we've seen them really spread some, nothing more than rumours. You know, today there was a, uh, I've, I'm on my annual Twitter holiday. I take a few weeks off Twitter every year around Christmas just for, for sanity's sake. But um, I, I popped in today uh, after we uh, arranged to talk. So I thought I'd just quickly see what's going on. And, you know, there was this long COVID study. And it's it's just really bad science. It, it's basically taken a bunch of people who've, who've self-reported long COVID symptoms. I haven't given a, a, a full thorough read yet, but only a, a third of the patients actually tested positive for COVID. And yet we're reporting this like this is absolute gold standard science and saying, look how devastating the effects of long COVID are. And there clearly is a phenomenon of long COVID. You know, I it's ridiculous that I feel I have to give that quali qualifier because as you say, you know, I don't want to be accused of saying that long COVID doesn't exist, but this is a bad study. We should be able to say that. And yet we've got prominent people, people with hundreds of thousands of followers tweeting this like it's fact. And I think, I guess that's been a theme of a lot of my videos that that's not, that's not science, right? Science isn't this monolithic machine that prints out an answer uh, in black and white that yes, this, this is the answer. This is categorical fact. Uh, we operate without uncertainty. We get conflicting results, but in the end, the scientific method will generally lead us towards the right answer. But there, there may be some vacillation and noise on the way there. And in previous years, that's probably been acceptable. But this year, you've got journalists who, you know, have, have really been tremendously frustrating at times, looking at preprints that hours after they're uploaded to the internet and reporting their findings as if this is accepted scientific fact instead of the the previous system where no one was really interested in a lot of things we were doing we could have these discussions within academic circles within medical circles and then you know formally talk to the press and, and say this is this is a consensus view but that's all kind of just been lost this year i'm glad you mentioned the long covid study because i agree with you i think it's a, it's, a, it's an awful study and i think and I think, you know, it gets tweeted by folks who have hundreds of thousands of followers. And, you know, let's face it, because it's a free-for-all medium, there are many of these tens of thousands of people who will read this, and they are not going to give it the time of the day and look at what the methods was. Yeah, of concert, course they're not, yeah. Right? They're going to say, okay, we'll take it face value and move on. And then it gets engraved into your deep brain, and, and that's it. And then you come to question it, and then Dr. Francis doesn't believe that COVID has long-term toxicity. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's where we are. Let's talk a little bit of um, just uh, people, uh, at least in the U.S., we, we, we congratulate the U.K. on helping us finding that dexamethasone actually works uh, with the recovery trial. And we, you know, we beat ourselves up that we have not been really able to conduct um, a, a randomized controlled trial. And, and we both know many of these studies, you know, from plasma to, you know, I don't want to rehash all of these things. Well, what's your view in terms of, do you think this is a function of the system that helped uh, the UK generate that trial uh, versus the US? Or do you think it's the culture? Do you think culture for physicians? Do you think the patients? Like how, uh, what are your thoughts there? I think it's important to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I probably am not um, the most qualified person to 
contrast with the US system because I much as I try, I'm still not entirely sure I understand how things work in, in America. But certainly we, we, don't, speak... we don't either. You're good. <laughs> Fine. Um, but certainly Europe cl clearly has led the way in terms of research for COVID this year. And, you know, a lot of the big trials have, have come out of Europe. And the similarity that we have across the European countries is we don't have identical healthcare systems, but we have uh, comparable systems in, in that there is a, a national network. Of course, in the UK, it's, it's the most formalized in that there is a single system that links all the different um, uh, hospitals in the UK, the National Health Service. And that has definitely, in, in my opinion, allowed these wide scale uh, studies to take place much more rapidly and over a, a bigger scale than a country which is much bigger than us, the USA, because it's just much more fragmented in terms of it, its hospital network. So for the recovery trial, which I think is a tremendous success story, um, you know, it was got up and running very rapidly. And then it went out to all the NHS hospitals and we all got instructions how to recruit patients. And, you know, they were able to scale up from uh, Oxford's and, and, and take it nationwide really quickly. So yeah, for sure, I think that has been uh, a benefit to the way we have our, our health service structured here, as well as a very strong culture of, of academia with, you know, a lot of uh, research groups and, and a lot of medical research coming out of the UK, as, as well as uh, other European countries as well. There's been a lot about vaccine distribution, Rowan. I think it goes without saying. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go on the record to say I never thought we'd have a vaccine in less than a year. Like, I would have Yeah, said, I, I'm also impressed by that, yeah. I, I, you know, so, you know, the credit goes to everybody that's worked on this and the volunteers. And you actually mentioned that in your video that I'll put on, the, on this episode, so I appreciate that. Vaccine distribution is a, is a thorny topic, at least on social media, as well as, uh, you know, in the States, and, and maybe it's less of a thorny topic in the Europe, in Europe, I don't know. But the UK has a different model than the US in terms of vaccine distribution. And I actually, again, went on record, and I did say that I think the UK model is better, because I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of vaccinating the elderly first, and the most vulnerable, I think that's where, where you will lower or mitigate the number of deaths, right? I mean, we all know age has been a major risk factor of COVID-related deaths. So it was kind of shocking to me, honestly, that we are vaccinating in the US every person that works in the hospital, including a volunteer or whatever it is. So what are your thoughts in terms of vaccine distribution? Do you, do you feel that uh, you guys got it right, we got it wrong? Do you think there's a happy medium? I mean, I don't know. Any thoughts on the vaccine distribution debacle? I don't know if I've, I've got any sort of scientific thoughts, but I, I have no problem with the vulnerable being prioritized first. I, I know that there have been a lot of colleagues in the US unhappy that um, healthcare professionals are not being as prioritized as, as much as they would like. Anecdotally, just you know, based on friends online and, and, and all the vaccine selfies that we're seeing, it seems like a lot of my American healthcare friends are getting vaccinated quite quickly, but I, I've not been here. I think some of my colleagues are starting to get some vaccines now, but certainly the emphasis, I think we're, we're on our way to our first million people vaccinated fairly soon. I think it's something like 
um, 700 plus thousand at the time of recording. And uh, that's predominantly been uh, the elderly and, and, and vulnerable patients. And to me, that, that seemed like a sensible approach. You know, I, I don't personally feel my risk is um, particularly high. I am um, unsure if I if I had uh, an infection early on. I, I got unwell, but nothing too serious quite early in the pandemic. Uh, but there were no tests available then, and my wife was was much more sick at the same time. So we we assume we we had it, but I don't know. So I don't personally feel like um, I should be front of the queue at the moment. But you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily representative of all healthcare professionals. There are uh, people of all ages working so it's always going to be a judgment call you, you talked about trade-offs i guess earlier on um but i think i'm quite happy with the uk approach are you going to uh, are we going to see your biceps and deltoid oh they're, they're very impressive so uh, of course I'll, I'll get them out at any opportunity but i'll have to yeah. do a bit of photoshopping first yeah, no, please. I mean, I, I can't, we, we can't wait. That may go viral. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it goes to the fact that I, I think uh, you, you could have a difference of opinion, but you always get the condescending view. If you, if you always contradict the uh, going norm, then you are insensitive to healthcare workers, which is, you know, it, it becomes very, very strange. What else should we talk about in terms of this, the year in review? We talked about COVID, vaccines, UK, US, uh, all of that stuff. What else, you know, again, in this past year that were lessons learned for Dr. Rohan Francis? Wow, uh, that's a big, big question. I, you know, I guess we've talked about disinformation or misinformation, um, which I, 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 I struggle to, to know how to, to deal with. Personally, you know, my own kind of journey through tackling some of those topics uh, this year you know, I find it really gratifying when I get messages saying that stuff that I've done has helped people try and cut through some of the the, the bad information that's out there. But I haven't taken on the kind of really wacky theories like, uh, you know, Bill Gates controlling people's minds with the vaccine and 5G spreading coronavirus and the thing, whole thing being a, a sort of man-made virus. And like, it's, it's not because... I'm, you know, it's it's some a question I ask myself often is, do I feel that that who 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 should I be debunking? I mean, this this is the kind of basic question. You know, who who should we spend our time debunking? And I don't know. You know, like sometimes I, I think I just don't have the energy to deal with that kind of crazy stuff. But that doesn't mean there aren't that people out there believing it, and whether something I say may help. I, I don't know. So I, I tend to kind of gravitate towards things I find more intellectually interesting, but I don't know if that's necessarily doing the most good. You know, if I, if I took a sort of utilitarian approach and say, you know, what, what kinds of videos should I be making that would benefit the most people? I, I worry that the answer would come back as something that I don't really want to spend my time making videos about. And so misinformation I think I probably could be accused of burying my head in the sand when it comes to some of these very wild conspiracy theories, because I just, I find it tremendously frustrating to deal with people who, who are, are willfully so far outside the norm. You know, they're, they're two standard deviations away from what is a normal belief, but they are infecting more and more people with the kinds of kind of th things that they promote online. 
And then, you know, you talked a bit about humor and sort of what the role should be of, of humor. And I think it's very easy to kind of mock a lot of these people. And I absolutely do do that. You know, it's, it's hard to resist not making fun of some of these very uh, outlandish ideas, but is that really changing any minds? I don't know. You know, am I, the people who tend to watch my videos are already kind of science, science minded and they probably don't need me to tell them that, uh, you know, this, this, that Bill Gates didn't engineer this, this virus or, or all that kind of stuff. I, I'm grateful that people are that out there trying to challenge this kind of, this kind of thing. So the, the role of, of humor, I've found for me a bit of a coping mechanism, but I think also I've, I've deliberately tried to take a, a lighthearted approach, which I try to do without being insensitive to any, any of the tragedies that have occurred this year. But there were some people, you know, want very serious kind of information communicated to them. But other people, I think, will benefit from having a bit more of a, a lighthearted look at some of these topics. And maybe that will help them understand some of these really challenging uh, topics we've had to deal with this year. So, you know, you, you'd said earlier you wanted to ask a, a bit about the role of, of comedy. And this is, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of making all these noises as some centrist without strong opinions on anything up till now. But the one thing that I, I feel I'm a bit of an extremist is uh, comedy. And I, I don't think anything should be out of bounds. And I just think if you're going to make jokes about something, then you better make them funny. So um, that's really my only rule. So you know, I'm sure I fail that on many occasions, but I don't feel that there's, there's any element of this pandemic that shouldn't have, um, shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't bring human into the equation. You know, somebody's going to say you're making fun of a tragedy and a, and a pandemic. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. But, you know, I, I've just got to li live with that, I guess. As we as we finish our episode, Rowan, and you've been very generous with your time, what what are we what are you looking forward to in 2021 uh, on a personal level, on a career level, on a um, social media presence level? Um, you know, uh, I've, I've, I discovered I don't think I can do a YouTube channel, so I think that's out for me. So, what what are you looking forward to? Oh gosh. Um... I, I mean, I, you know, the obvious answer, I guess, is 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 life getting back to a, a bit more normality. For, for for us, I've got a family of two young kids and and my wife, who is a non-medic. I, I, I guess we've found the whole lockdown not as challenging as a lot of people in, in that um, uh, we, we weren't planning any big holidays. Uh, my wife's parents are in India, so we haven't seen them and they haven't seen the, their grandkids this year, which has been a, a challenge. And I, I've got a, a severely disabled brother who, who who lives in a residential home in in uh, in London, who I normally see pretty frequently, and I haven't been able to see him as much this year. So I'm I'm really looking forward to being able to see family members in a more normal way. But uh, professionally. Um, I'm, I'm coming to a kind of landmark in my uh, career in that I'll be now applying for permanent consultant jobs in the next few months. So um, fingers crossed uh, someone will want to employ me. And uh, hopefully... Not after this podcast. So, yeah, exactly. But um, 
yeah, I'm getting cancelled before I even become a consultant. The uh, uh, but you know, I I would love to 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 work um, for an employer similar to where I work now, who's really supportive of these other interests of mine. So, so you know, the um, the team in the Essex Garden Essex Centre, in contrast to some of the places I've worked before, which are a bit more stuffy and academic, really think that it's a very exciting medium to explore, and they see the potential for medical education using video. So I've been able to actually start making more straight medical education stuff. But again, you know, not doing it in that very staid, boring, filmed PowerPoint, one hour long presentation, taking more of a, a kind of uh, modern approach to, to straight cardiology education, so directed at cardiologists, but again, you know, trying to make it a bit more engaging. So that's an exciting project that I'm looking forward to getting more involved with. In terms of the YouTube channel, world dominance and, and nothing short of that is is all I want you know I want to crush everybody else and uh, become the next PewDiePie and have a hundred million subscribers <laughs> you will you will I have to ask you a really quick question when you do the videos I mean some of them at least for me as an amateur they really look they have a lot of you do a lot of production in them in terms of the in entering the images and all of that stuff I mean do you have somebody helping you with this or do you really do that no no it's it's all all 100% me I haven't had any any outside help at all uh which is probably not the best approach i'm as a bit of a control freak um and i also kind of quite like the process and it, it's it's just like a, a a hobby that's uh sort of really taken off and it's iterative so if you know if anyone out there listening wants to to get started and i, I really would encourage lots of people to, to give it a try but you know you said yourself it's not for you and again i would agree that it's not for everybody. So I'm not at all suggesting that we should all be making videos, but if you have the interest to do it, please don't feel that uh, the limiting step is the technology that you have or the, the gear and, and budget shouldn't be a, a constraint. If you have a smartphone, that's, that's enough to, to get started. And uh, you'll see with my videos is that they, they really were quite sort of amateur to start with, but gradually along the way, you, you, figure out the stuff that you need to buy or the stuff that you need to learn. Well, I'll have to bow away from YouTube. Otherwise, I'll crush you. I'll get the 100 million. Uh, oh, bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so much fun. I actually, you know, would love to have you more often and even have you as a guest host to uh, even interview folks if your time allows. I think it would be a lot of oh, fun so sometimes just having uh, more people. Any final thoughts before I let you go to your kids? Well, I mean, you know, I look forward to, to us chatting again, for sure. Um, let's see what 2021 brings. Uh, I guess you said this this might air, air in... I think hope, couple, we're, hoping, we're hoping for January 12th for this. January 12th. So That's 12 days awesome. into the new year. There's probably already been some catastrophic <laughs> event by now, and this will sound completely tone deaf, but uh, who knows? I do feel that the people who are pouring all of their hope into 2021 being better are, are going to be let down. Oh, I actually have said 2021 is not going to be better. I mm -hmm. actually think that it's going to be uh, an economic disaster for a lot of people. And um, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. There's, there's okay. a lot of COVID fatigue, isn't there? You know, this this wave in the hospital, which it's very busy where I work at the moment, and it does seem busier than, than the first time around. But I think the main difference is we're all just kind of much tireder. Like this, the first time around, it was a kind of, feeling of a platoon going into battle and we all had a bit of energy 
now I think we're just all feeling like oh, we, we had fun having some of the Zoom parties and the Zoom coffee days. Now I'm like, <laughs> you have Zoom fatigue. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, Rowan, I really appreciate everything you're doing. It's it's really marvelous. Um, I'm I'm a big fan. I hope everybody that's listening check out everything that you are doing because I think. It's just so much fun. You, you, so much stuff you could look on the website and, and following you on social media is just great. And um, would love to have you more often. Me and you, maybe we can like team up and interview some additional guests and becomes like a, the Rohin Nabhan show. We'll see. Well, sounds good. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thank you and happy new year. You too. Thanks, folks, for listening. I really appreciate you uh, taking the uh, time of your busy schedule to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Rowan Francis' medlife crisis um, on this show. I certainly enjoyed every minute of it. I plan on having him back on the show. I plan on having him host a couple of future episodes of the show. So, uh, uh, Rohan, get ready. You're going to be a co-host on a couple of uh, shows in 2021. I mean, what else you've got to do? You just do YouTube, Twitter, you're a cardiologist getting a PhD. You're not that busy, so get ready and do it. Uh, I'd like to hear from you how I'm doing. I'd like to get some feedback. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can send me an email to shadinabhan at outlook.com or by visiting my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You can message me there, and I promise that I will get the message and I will respond appropriately. As always, subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review if you can, refer a friend or a colleague. I would be forever grateful. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying that might be fitting for this episode by Charlie Chaplin. A day without laughter is a day wasted. And until next time, take care and Happy New Year.